So this time, open your Bibles to the book of Revelation. We just mentioned it in our prayers. Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. And this morning, we are coming back to a topical study that we started last week. We've been doing a jet tour study. A jet tour is where you... A jet tour is where you hit a passage of scripture or a series of passages of scripture in a non-detailed way. Well, last week, as we have been moving through a jet tour of the book of Revelation, we came to chapter 6. And when we came to chapter 6, it really opened up something really important that I believed you needed to understand. You see, in chapter 6, verse 1, we begin the sealed judgments. Look at verse 1. Then I saw the lamb break one of the seven seals. Let's just stop right there. These are the first of the three major types of judgments in the book of Revelation. You've got seal judgments, you've got trumpet judgments, you've got bowl judgments. They're devastating. In the seal judgments, 25% of the world dies. In the trumpet judgments, 33% of the world dies. In the bowl judgments, we believe almost everyone in the world dies because almost everyone in the world is an unbeliever. So this is important that we really understand this. And we need to understand it because when you look at the study of the book of Revelation, so many people really struggle with understanding. They have all these different views on the book of Revelation, and they misunderstand the tribulation. And we have said one of the key things that you need to do is to use just normal reading practices and one of the things I, I've kept asking people is the fact that when you have already studied with us through the first five chapters, is this something that you can understand? You don't have to throw your arms up. And I've been really encouraged where you're saying, yeah, I don't have to throw my arms up in like confusion. Like I, there, You don't have any idea what's going on in this book. That's great. Well, one of the things that I think is so important to understand is what this sixth chapter introduces us to, and it comes in the very last few lines. Look at verses 16 and 17. And it says, as the sixth seal was open, and it says, and they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath, there being God the Father and God the Son, who I believe was just mentioned, the one who's on the throne being God the Father, the Lamb being Jesus. For Verse 17, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? And the idea of the day opens us up into a, a very important subject matter that I believe we have to understand. So even taking a step back from our jet tour, we started a topical study on the day, this concept of the day. And we'll get into that here in a bit, but it's, it's all part of the time, I believe, when we come to the book of Revelation, when Jesus Christ comes back again. We are celebrating the, the birth of Jesus Christ during this December period, not only here in America, but around the world. Some people call it the first advent. I get it. And one of the things that's important for us to keep before us, simple truth, is that Jesus Christ is coming again. There is a second coming of Jesus Christ. And we believe here at Christian Fellowship Church that, that he will come for the church prior to the tribulation in what's called the rapture of the church. 
Somewhere along the line after that, there will be a seven-year period, which is the seal, trumpet, and bull judgments. And then he returns at the end of that seven-year period. He returns as a warrior. First time he came in a manger. Second time he comes riding on a horse with a sword. And we've looked at that, and I'm not going to look at it now. Revelation chapter 19. After he comes, he will have then saved all of Israel. All Israel will be saved at the end of that time. Every believer that has been saved through the tribulation, the seven-year period, will go with him into a 1,000-year period. That 1,000-year period will end with a, an attack by Satan, and God will allow Satan to come and attack, and yet he will be destroyed. And at that point, God will burn up this present heavens and earth and start a new heavens and earth. And that's from 2 Peter chapter 3. That's the big picture. And, you know, over the years, I'm sure many of you who have heard pastors talk about, the, about this coming tribulation and the coming judgment have gotten people really excited and people all on edge like, oh, it's just about to, ha- about to occur. And one of the things I want to make it clear is I'm not trying to date set in any way. On November 21st, when we had our big Thanksgiving outreach, I did a sermon in which I, I included 10 reasons why I think the day is near. And I tried to show you biblically why, biblically why I think it is getting closer and closer and closer. One of the passages I didn't bring up was the second Timothy passage that we just read prior to our study today. Why didn't I bring it? to the forefront well because you know when it says but difficult days will come in the last well difficult times will come in the last days when we did a study of second timothy three last days was the expression for the entire period between the first and second coming and somebody who's really loose with their theology can just easily get people all worked up and heightened and start to say look we're living in the last days it's the like final time and jesus is right around the corner well, I don't want to be manipulative like that. I don't want a date set. I don't want to have confusion. And so I don't want to have confusion. And then all of a sudden, this is what we put on our church sign this week. <laughs> Jesus, this is for advertising our Christmas Eve service. But I, put, I had some room, and I don't know if you can see it. Jesus came to earth once, comma, he's coming again, Christmas Eve, 7 p.m. <laughs> I feel bad. We put a period out there this morning. Hopefully, it cleared it up. But I, I, you know, I thought if somebody gets upset and comes looking to us, I'll, I'll answer any questions. But I got it. All right. But what if I came to you? And this is where I want you guys. I want you guys to be alert. I want you to be astute. What if I came to you and I said, you know, look at the times of the days that we live in. The times that we live in are really, really close. Christ is so close because. Let's talk about school killings. Aren't school killings bad and they're happening all the time? Let's talk about the worst school killing ever. And then let's talk about, boy, you have some slimy politicians. We've got presidents having affairs. And that shows us just things are just so bad. And, and then I know that people are looking at the way children are today. The way children are being raised, they are so disobedient. I want you to read one. Listen to this quote. Um, this quote that basically says, oh, where is it? Uh, I'm gonna, uh, I don't have it with me. Where is my quote? 
Well, I'll, I'll, I'll read it to you in a second. I have a quote that's talking about how bad children are. Oh, this is it. This is my quote. Listen to this quote about what a philosopher has said about the raising of children. Children now love luxury. They have bad manners, contempt for authority. They show disrespect for elders and love chatter in place of exercise. Children are now tyrants, not the servants of their household. They, are no, they no longer rise when elders enter the room. They contradict their parents. They chatter before company. They gobble up dainties at the table. They cross their legs and tyrannize their teachers. And boy, isn't that true today? Absolutely. Now, what did I just bring up? I just brought up some very important things that are happening in society. But the problem is, is that number one on these signs of the times, we talk about school shootings. We talk about presidential affairs. We talk about bad children of today. Number one... School shootings. You know the worst school shooting in America was in 1927? 1927, not school shooting, school killings. This guy was upset because he wasn't elected to the board, and he decided that on a morning, the last day of school, and I forget the exact date, 315 children were in school. He rigged a bomb to go off at 8.45 in the morning. 38 children died, six adults. Then when people were coming to rush the scene to help, he came again and blew off a second bomb and more people were killed, okay? So 1927, last days, difficult times will come. Look, remember what I just said, last days is typical, that passage is typical of the entire period before this first and second coming. Now I could have picked any other, um, many other presidential affairs, but the one I was talking about and the one I was talking about, and it's just been proven to be true, is this one. President Harding in the 1920s had an affair with this woman. And it went on from 1917 to 1923. Her name is Nan Britton. Um, he had a daughter born in 1919. He totally denied it, but he secretly promised to take care of the child. He unexpectedly dies in 1923. Then his followers just destroy this woman's life. She just dies in 1991. Her child, Elizabeth, grows up under the auspices of the incredible lie. You weren't, weren't really President Harding's child. She has multiple children. And guess what? In 2015, we now have this thing called DNA testing. Ancestry.com does a test. They prove that she actually was Harding's child. Okay? So there you got this idea of, you know, the slimy press, the slimy politicians, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But this has been going on, people. And it's been going on. And then lastly, I wanted to talk about this quote. This was the quote, but it's not a quote from antiquity, uh, a summary. It's a, it's a quote from a 1907 dissertation by a guy named um, Kenneth John Freeman. My point is, is, as a pastor who's trying to always teach the Bible the correct way, I don't want to get you all hyped up with the false things about why I think the end, of the, t uh, the end is coming and why the tribulation is coming. I'd encourage you, if you weren't here, you can go and to that November 21st podcast and listen. There are things that are happening, like the fact that Israel is getting to rebuild the temple. There's, you've got Israel back in the land, and then you've got the ability to control buying and selling with these things we call cell phones, like that has never happened before. That's why we're close. All right. So we came to chapter 6, and I just said, look, 
I want to take time and I want to go over seven topics that I think you should be aware of when you deal with this day. Look at verse 17. For the great day of their wrath has come. Now, we said last week a day could be a 24-hour period. It could be a couple-year period, or it could be like an age. And it's important that we understand this concept that has led us to a topical study on the day of the Lord. So if you've got your sermon notes, again, I emphasize what I emphasized last week, that the sermon notes are not for us to go to every passage, but this is one I really would hope that you would keep in your, your, your Bibles as a reference guide, because the day of the Lord is something that confuses a lot of people, and the tribulation confuses a lot of people, and I think you could really help a lot of people if you had this reference guide so that you could show them. So, as we go through the notes, all right, one of the very first things that we said, and this is from last week, is that when we looked at that concept of the day of wrath right there in verse 17, wrath means anger. And it, this led us to look at the fact that there are all kinds of terms in the Bible referring to what we understand as the tribulation. So, if you go back, and I hope some of you looked this week, it's a day of wrath, of vengeance, Jacob's trouble. Why is it called Jacob's trouble? Because uh, so much of the emphasis on the tribulation is on, is on punishing Israel for killing Jesus the first time. And then there's, there's the expression of calling it Daniel's 70th week, which again, my plug for the men's study. If you don't understand the book of Daniel, if you don't understand that this is the entire background, backbone for all prophecy, then you're going to be clearly confused when you come to study end times. And Daniel's 70th week really even told us when Jesus was going to be around for the first time, let alone when we deal with what is the seven-year period of, the, of what we deem to be the tribulation period. So as we went, and all we're trying to do is like look and understand this concept of the tribulation, and it has all these different names. We even went through 2 Peter, and I said there were other names like Day of, Day of God, Day of Judgment. We didn't add to this list, so it didn't confuse you. But the main one was the Day of the Lord. This is an expression that is used a lot in the Bible. But let's just take a step back. If you've got these sermon notes, this is what you should understand. When we talk about the tribulation in the Bible, it's known by many names. All right? That's all I'm trying to get there. It's known by many names. So then I said, wow, the day of the Lord is very important. D-O-L, sometimes it's referenced in notes. It is 19 times in the Old Testament, four times in the Old Testament. I mean, excuse me, 19 in the Old Testament, four times it's used in the New Testament. So this is a very important subject matter. It's, I want to say, in numerous places in the Bible. And then like a passage that we're going to look at in Isaiah chapter 2 We'll talk about the day of the Lord, but then reference the day like four or five other times. So when I say it's 23 times, I mean 19 times in the Old Testament, four times in the, Old, in the New Testament, so a total of 23 explicit times in the entire Bible, there's numerous other references to the day to the day. So second point, you got your sermon notes, you want to put a little side note. It's just that this is talked a lot about in the, a lot in the Bible. It's very important that you understand this concept of the day of the Lord. Then we went in and said this. And I, this is where it could get really confusing on your sermon notes, but I don't want you to, I didn't want you to look all these up. But what I wanted you to see here 
is that all of a sudden, when you start studying the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord has many senses of judgment. What this, what is basically is saying is the day of the Lord is used as a time when God is bringing judgment on someone. All right? And here, if somebody looks at the day of the Lord and thinks it's just the end times, then that is where they make mistakes. It's sort of like when you, you're, you're studying a subject matter and you think it only happens once or twice in the Bible or you have a wrong understanding, and all of a sudden you say, oh, I just see this once, and therefore it has to be the same thing. It's not the same thing. And this is what was key. When these first four references to the day of the Lord, and you can put this on your sermon notes, have already happened. And it's really, really important because if you can understand that, you know, when you're reading the Bible and you're reading the Bible and you're coming across it and it says day of the Lord and and you say to yourself, well, day of the Lord is clearly end times and it's the maybe that's the battle of Armageddon. And and you say, here it is in Joel chapter one. Wait a second. It doesn't seem like it's the exact same event. No, because the one in Joel chapter 1 was a locust judgment, and it's already occurred. And this one is Babylon's, ba- the Babylonian judgment on Israel in 605. And this one was when the Persians um, um, came in and punished Babylon. So my point is, it's through proper study that you begin to understand, day of the Lord is used in many different senses. But here is the key. When we go forward, it's used these ways. And this is where a lot of people get confused. It's used on the judgment for Israel. And if you looked up these passages, you would say, oh, wow, the tribulation is with the day of the Lord is about how Israel's going to be punished. But then you look up all these other passages and unbelievers are being punished, right? Unbelievers are being punished. But then you go to this passage and you say, wait a second, the Battle of Armageddon, that's like a one-day event. That's this Joel 3 passage. And that's different from these two. Obviously, 5 and 6 cover the same period. It's number 7 that's, I believe, a one-day event. But this, too, is a one-day event. At the end of a 1,000 years, Second Peter chapter 3 says the entire universe is going to be melted. That is a day of the Lord event. So you can see if somebody is sloppy with their, with their study and all of a sudden they say, oh, I see the day of the Lord and I think it's the battle of Armageddon, then all of a sudden they mess up and they think five and six are the same event. Day of the Lord is used in many different ways. Does that, does that help? Somebody nod their head. Yeah, okay. I, I just want you to understand that day of the Lord has 23 explicit references. You can start looking them up and you start categorizing them. So if I'm repeating myself, first four have already occurred. These two are the seven-year tribulation. This is a one-day event, Battle of Armageddon. This is the end of this is the end of the thousand years. And when you see Day of the Lord, each one of these passages calls Day of the Lord, Day of the Lord, Day of the Lord. You'll see. Wait a second. They're used in different ways, and that's why I don't want you to be confused, and I don't want us to be sloppy in our our understanding of this expression. So then, when we look at this and you say, wait a second, this is really heavy, it's judgment. 
Why were people so excited who were Jews dealing with the day of the Lord? Well, turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 2. And as we turn there, I want you to see the day of the Lord includes blessing. And this will be different than the online sermon. I decided this morning I'm going to switch this over. And I want you to see the book of Isaiah is written around the 726, maybe the 686 B.C. You say, I, I get it. You don't like dates. People don't like dates. But this is right before the Assyrian captivity and then it prophesizes the Babylonian captivity. Also, you got to know, Isaiah is writing to the people of Israel when they're, they're being very unfaithful. Israel's not being good. And, and God is telling them, I'm going to come, I'm going to punish you, I'm going to bring judgment upon you. But I want you to understand, this world is totally crazy, but I want to give you this promise. Look at this. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. He says, The word which Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, now it will come about in the last days. The last days. It's an expression that you've got to differentiate from the last days and tie it, as it ties to that second Timothy 3 passage, but it'll come about in the last days. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come, come and say, come, let us go to the mountains of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. for the law will go forth from Zion and the word from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations and render decisions for many peoples and will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Basically, he's going to do away with war. I believe this is talking about how, the, how in the last days we're going into what is the thousand-year period of Revelation 20. But what I want you to see, we're going to get to a reference when this is being talked about tied to the day of the Lord. So verse 4 continues, nation will rise will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. <laughs> Wait a second, this has never occurred, because we're still dealing with wars. So verse 5, come, house of Jacob, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. For you have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob, because they are filled with influences from the east, and they are soothsayers like the Philistines, and they strike bargains with the children of foreigners. Their land has also been filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land has also been filled with horses, there is no end to their chariots. Their land is also filled with idols. They worship the work of their hands, that which their fingers have made. So the common man has been humbled and the man of importance has been abased, but do not forgive them. Enter the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The proud look of man will be abased and the loftiness of man will be humbled. And the Lord will be exalted in what? That day. For, and now my New American Standard doesn't translate this as, as it should be because of, there's just a, a little grammatical thing in there, and I, and I get it, so I don't want to confuse you, but literally it could say, for the day of the Lord of hosts will have, will have a reckoning, almost everyone who is proud and lofty, and against everyone who is lifted up, that he may be abased. So basically, verse 12 says, for the day of the Lord is going to be a day of reckoning. It's a day when he's bringing judgment on people. It's a day, though, when everyone's going to stop having war in that day, in these last days. So it's, it, even though we're talking about incredible judgment, you have to understand right here, this Isaiah is bringing in the fact that it's a time of blessing. So this is why Israel looked forward to the day of the Lord. They, they would be you know, hearing about God's judgment, 
it's out of this time that everyone that's evil is going to get theirs. Now, did you notice, and I just want you to remember, what did verse 10 say? 10 talked about people going in rocks and hiding. Remember, didn't we just read that in Revelation 6? People were hiding in rocks, hiding in rocks. This is in the great day of wrath, the day of the Lord. So, the day of the Lord is sometimes very hard to get your arms around because it has a lot of judgment, but it also has a lot of blessing. Now, next point. What I want you to see is that the day of the Lord is longer than 24 hours. Really simple point. When we talk about the day of the Lord tribulation judgment, it is clearly longer than 24 hours. You've got some of the events here in Isaiah chapter 2 that you could say, wow, it's clear. This is, you know, in that day, in that time, you have people coming and visiting God. And I think that ties in a little bit to the, the thousand-year day of the Lord. But here's the passage that I think makes it clearest. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And remember I, I said the four, there's four times in the, in the Bible, in the New Testament, four times in the New Testament that the day of the Lord is referenced. We're going to look at three of them. The first one comes in Acts chapter 2, and I, I don't think that is necessarily for, for the church um, initially, uh, qualifying that. Um, but the next three is are going to be used by Paul and Peter. And so what I want you to understand is when people look at the day of the Lord and they think, oh, it's just the day of Armageddon. It's just the final battle of Armageddon. You can take that Isaiah passage that we just looked at and say, look, it's talking about a whole bunch of different events that seem to be longer than just 24 hours. But most importantly here. The context is this church in Thessalonica that the Apostle Paul was writing, it's very clear that for some reason somebody has lied to them and said, guess what? The tribulation has started. No, they don't just say tribulation. They literally say the day of the Lord has started. Now, what I want you to think about is if the day of the Lord was just 24 hours, they just had to wait 24 hours and they would have been in and out of it and it would have been over, let alone having to get a letter sent off to Paul. Hey, we're all concerned. Paul sending a letter back saying, don't worry. Now listen, look at chapter 2, verse 1. Now we request you, brethren, Paul speaking for all the missionaries with him, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed by a spirit or a message or a letter from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. You can underline it. Day of the Lord. Day of the Lord has come. And then he says, let no one in any way deceive you, for it is not come. It, some of your Bibles has it will not come, but it really should be it is not come. Unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who, who opposes and exalts himself about every so-called object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. All right, so this is, to me, the most simplest way for you to see that this is, this is longer than a 24-hour period. 
It, and just not the final battle of Armageddon. Now, it's not telling me it's the full seven-year period, but I, I, I want you just to understand that you can begin to say, look, somebody that has made a major error and said it's just the end, it's just the end, just show them this. <laughs> Let alone the passages in Isaiah as well as the passage that deals with Second Peter where everything is totally, totally, totally um, disintegrated. All right. So we're just building a theology because this day is so important. 23 times it's in the Bible, 19 in the Old Testament, 4 in the New Testament. It is referenced in numerous other ways called the day, the day, the day. Hence, this is why you need to understand this day. So it helps if you think about and understand the tribulation day of the Lord is longer than 24 hours. Then we go to this one. Go back to Revelation 6. And one of the major confusions that I've had to deal with over and over and over, and I've brought up those books by Bob Van Campen and um, by Marvin Rosenthal a couple weeks ago, is when you come to different views on the tribulation, people will say, you know, when you're talking about the day of the Lord and you're talking about the timing of the rapture, it's very clear that the church doesn't go through God's wrath, and we'll talk about that. And they'll say, oh, here, this is what Mr. Van Kampen really started pushing, is when you come to verse 17, this is when the day of the Lord starts. So it says, for the great day of the wrath has come, and who is able to stand? The great day of the wrath has come. It didn't say for the great day of the wrath has started. And this is when sloppy exegesis comes in. And there are some good people that I, I really highly respect, and they come, and I can't believe they make the mistake of saying this. They say it starts at this point. What I want you to understand is when we look at day of the Lord references and we understand it's a long period, this is not, this is not when the day of the Lord starts. I believe the day of the Lord, because it ties into Daniel's seven-year period, the one week, I believe the day of the Lord starts in chapter 6, verse 1. And when he says the, the lamb broke the first seal, I believe all six seals are part of the day of the Lord. I believe the entire tribulation, seals, trumpet, bowl, judgments. Now, most people will not argue that trumpet and bowl judgments are day of the Lord. I just don't want you guys to be confused. If somebody were to come to you and say, wow, that's quite when it started, first of all, I want you to tell them, look, I don't want to always play the foreign language card, the Greek card, but you can. You can definitely bring up the fact that, that this is, um, that this is a, that this verb here, has come, has arrived, is an aorist verb that allows for something that has previously occurred. Now, I know you guys, I, I, somebody plays the Greek card, the foreign language card, you go to the Hebrew card, it could be, you know, come off as like scholarly and try to, you know, I, I, like, I, I know more than you and everything like that. But really the issue here isn't just knowing Greek, it's knowing English. And let me give you an example. 
because I want you to see, if you understand this, then it's not so much Greek, it's, it's not understanding English. I remember on the very first day of, my first day of Hebrew, back in seminary, my professor, Dr. Zemek, said, the problem with you understanding Hebrew is not going to be understanding this foreign language that the Jews used. It's going to be the fact that you don't understand English. And he was so right. Let me give you an illustration. Say it's a Friday morning. It's around 8 a.m. in the morning. And you've been waiting for a package from Amazon. We live in a day and age when people get Amazon packages, right? And it's 8 a.m. in the morning, and you've been waiting and waiting and waiting for this package. And the package doesn't come. Sadly, you have to leave at 8 to go out of town for an entire week. Unbeknownst to you, though, the package comes at 8.30, but you've left at 8. It sits on your porch for an entire seven days. One whole week comes back, goes by, and you now come home. Seven days later, you see your package, and what do you say? My package has arrived. Now, wait a second. You can even say, my package has come. Has your package been there for seven days? Absolutely. So that's where people don't understand even their own language. We, are, we can say something like, it's here, and, and, or it starts, and try to say something different. But the language that was specifically chosen is one that indicates a, a, an event that has happened in the past that it still has present results. So when these people look at verse 17 and they make their announcement, Hey, let's, you know, let's, let's go hide because the great day of, of wrath has come. It's because they've recognized, wait a second, we've pieced everything together. Everything that we've been studying or we've, that we know of about end times, it's very clear that this is God's judgment. It's not that it starts at this point. And somebody that makes that point that, oh, it starts at this point, like Rosenthal or Van Campen, who are very prominent now and have influenced people, sadly, like even James McDonald, who I, who I would at times respect, has come and taken this, like, oh, it started there. It hasn't started there, people. It's, it has always, it's been around. And, it, and, and so that is just a real simple, real simple point to make so that you don't get confused by people who come to you and say, oh, the day of the Lord starts there. The first five, six, seven seals, first five seals were Satan's wrath. Well, this is what Van Kampen says, and a lot of people have bought into this. Where in the world in chapter six is Satan? He's nowhere. Who's the one that opens the seal? The, the, the lamb. This is all God's wrath, and it all fits with the terminology of what the tribulation is about. A day of vengeance, a day of wrath. Not just any day of vengeance, it's God's vengeance, God's wrath, because God is upset with sin. God is very upset with sin, and he's bringing judgment upon the world. But he's not bringing it to the church, and that's what we want you to understand. We have said that due to this rapture event and these day of the Lord passages, it's clear that the church is not destined for tribulation. We've studied the rapture in previous studies. It's the event where, from 1 Thessalonians 4, the church is seized off of the earth. 
It is the passage from 1 Corinthians 15 where God talks about we're changing a moment in an instant. It doesn't make any sense, those passages, for the end of the tribulation. You cannot make it the end of the tribulation for many reasons. It has to be before the tribulation starts. And I want to look at three passages, and we'll be done quickly here. So just turn to 1 Thessalonians. And we started this last week. And what I pointed out um, is that when we looked at this last week, is that it's interesting that every one of these day of the Lord passages, now these are the three. Remember I said there are four New Testament day of the Lord passages. One is in the book of Acts. Here's the other three. We, we looked at this one last week, Second Peter, and I believe this day of the Lord is the millennium day of the Lord. But it's interesting, he tells us, you better live holy because the bottom line is, is when life all comes to an end, nothing that you store up on this earth is going to matter. Everything's going to burn away. And it, and it doesn't matter if, if there's the seven-year tribulation or the thousand-year millennium, don't live for this world. It's passing away and also it's lust. So here is what I want you to see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Right after he's talked about the rapture, Paul says this, verse 1. Now as to the times and epochs, brethren, times and epochs, like the eras, the days, when things are happening, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well what? There's our word, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Now, I believe this is the tribulation day of the Lord. It's going to come quickly. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come on them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. When the world thinks they finally have gotten it, they, they're going to be saying peace and safety, peace and safety. And I've show you, showed you and I'll show you again the video where political leaders around the world are calling for peace and safety. It gets downright eerie, scary when you look at these modern day videos of our current political leaders around the world saying all we need is peace and safety. Peace and safety focused on the nation of Israel. That's why Israel is the focus. Israel is the focus. Not what's happening necessarily in America, not what's happening in China, but what's Israel. Because if we can get peace and safety in Israel, then we wouldn't have these Arabs fighting. We wouldn't have any religious wars. We'd have everything behind us. So while they are saying peace and safety as if they finally have gotten it, but you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day should overtake you like a thief. The day, what? Remember, day of the Lord. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of day nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us, let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not, there's our key word, destined us, for wrath. What did we just see in Revelation 6? The day of wrath. Now, again, somebody twists it and says, oh, that's when the day starts. They, they don't understand grammar, let alone the theology that the day is a day of vengeance, the day of Daniel's 70th week. It's a day of wrath. We're not destined for it, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. And there's the thing. If you're not a believer, you need to understand how important it is to believe in Jesus. Now, again, one more time. The church is not afraid to go through 
persecution. The church in the 20th century went through more persecution than it ever has. We've been blessed in America. We haven't been going through persecution. But that's why Carl brings those, those calendars, the Voice of the Martyr, v VOM, to pray because the church is being persecuted now. Christians are being killed for their faith. But right now, what you have is that we're not destined for wrath. It's not just wrath, human wrath, Satan's wrath, whatever. It, it, we're talking about God's wrath. So we need to understand we're not destined for wrath. But this is what we need to understand. This is fill in the blank. In this context, did you see there's an exhortation thrown in there? Look at verse 8. But since we are of the day, and he, he's used this as a, as, as a sense that we're, we are of understanding in the sense of there's day and night. So he's gone from day of the Lord to also using the idea of, of people being alert during the day versus sleep at night. So the idea of being alert is the idea in verse 8. Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Those are terminologies just from Ephesians chapter 6, putting on the armor of God. We're to know that, yeah, we're not going to go into the tribulation, but we're to be battling until then. We need to be spiritually strong, and this is why all of us need to be faithfully battling. Ephesians 6, our, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers, the principalities, the spiritual forces of the air. We we have to realize Satan is merciless, and, and he will destroy your lives. I've, every week, it's, it weighs on me as a pastor as I deal with incredible trials and difficulties that some of you go through, and my friends go through, and the, the horrific things that we see in the paper, let alone our world being cursed. With, we wake up this morning and hear about all the people killed in the tornado last night or yesterday. It, it, it's a horrible reality of what this world is all about. But we are not to look at it and say, oh, I'm so thankful I'm not going through the tribulation. I'm just going to use the time to rest. No, we need to go to battle. We need to go to war. Look, so look at, put on that helm of salvation. Get involved. Get active in service. You are go, called to be a spiritual warrior at this time. Now, at the same time, turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians, that passage that we read earlier, where the people thought that they were in the day of the Lord. And this time I want to focus not just on the fact that, that they have misunderstood and, and Paul corrected them, but I want to focus on the fact in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 when he says in verse 1, We request you, brethren, with regard to our coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by your spirit or a letter to the effect that the, that the day of the Lord has come or is here Again, there's a grammar issue very similar to the one in Revelation, that the day of the Lord is here. What is he trying to say? Don't be shaken. Don't be upset. Don't be all worried like, oh, I've got to worry about, you know, the, the day of the Lord. And if Christians were going to go through the day of the Lord, his next line might be, hey, this is how you need to stock up. This is how you need to find a place in the hills. And I know people, I've got friends that are very wealthy that have got escape homes all ready to go. And I tell them, it's not going to help. When you look at the day of the Lord, remember from Revelation chapter 6, it doesn't matter where you hide. People are hiding in the rocks because the, the, the entire world is upside down. There's no place to hide from God. And it's absolutely foolish. But the Christians are not to be shaken. And the exhortation here is have peace toward the future. 
This is what we're supposed to be as we get out and we live holy lives. And I'm not going to have us go into that second Peter passage, which I hope you guys would go back into on your own. So the idea is have peace, have peace and understand that we're not destined for this, but it isn't vacation time. We of all people have to realize where the world is marching towards. Yes, every day in the last days takes us closer to the return of Jesus Christ. But the reality of it is, is that while we wait, we're supposed to be doing spiritual battle and living holy lives. I tell you, when I, when I think about that and to think about the fact that I'm going to be facing God and I'm going to be having to answer to him because he's coming again, it doesn't matter if this was written 2,000 years ago. It doesn't matter if it was for the year 500 A.D. or 1,000 A.D. God wants his church to live holy lives. So challenge yourself. Are you living in light of the fact that one day you're going to face Jesus face to face? That's part of, like, part of the, the day of the Lord. If everyone's going to face him. So there you go, all right? You've got these sermon notes. I know it's overwhelming, but it's a reference guide. I hope that more than anything, it, this has helped you. Okay, there, there's many days, many references, many names for the, for the tribulation. This tribulation is focused on an event called the Day of the Lord. The Day of the Lord is used 23 times in the Bible. And I need to understand that when it's used, it's not just used for the seven-year tribulation. It's used for events that have already occurred, four of them that I, for sure, five of them are future. Two of them refer to the tribulation, seven-year period. One deals with the Battle of Armageddon, which is in that seven-year period, and then one for the end of the millennium. All that to say is that helps me say, oh, wait a second. I don't have to come tripped up, and I don't have to become one of these people that starts to come up with a, like a, an, an obscure view of end times because I now understand that when I study a subject matter and I just see a word used, I cannot just assume that it is what I think it is. I've got to look at it in its context. And so many different senses of the day of the Lord. A day that's going to bring incredible blessing. And we long for it. We yearn for it. But we also realize a lot of people are going to die in it. <laughs> and because of that, we need to tell people to get saved today. When the day of the Lord comes, it, the next one, the tribulation one, it's going to last for a seven-year period. We're, we'll get into that in future studies. But it is not something that happens in the middle of the tribulation. It starts right at the start when the seal judgments are broken. There you go. Make sure you're living holy lives. Make sure you're living faithfully. I pray that these exhortations that we put on here about doing spiritual battle, recognizing that we, we, we've got this understanding and accumulation of where the world is going, and we can bring all our charts and books, and we can understand all of this stuff about end times. But God doesn't want this to be an academic exercise. He wants it to impact our lives today. He wants it to impact our witnessing today, our giving today, our service today, because the days that we have are short. And if Jesus Christ doesn't return in the next 20 years and you live like a wild man, wild woman living for Jesus Christ, praise God, because in the end, you're going to face God and be rewarded for how you lived. So please be faithful. And challenge yourself in this day and age of so much wickedness. We do live in a wicked world. Yes, it, that quote about children becoming more and more crazy could go for adults as well. 
in the sense that we can all look and say, this is a world that, that is incredibly vile and, and, and wicked in all of the things that it's doing. And, and don't let it influence you as the church. Think about how you need to be living a holy life today because you're going to have to answer to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for putting this stuff about the plan, the future, where the world's going. There's so many questions we also have that we've never had answered. We don't know what's happening after the the new heavens and the earth specifically, but we're going to trust you. We're going to trust it's all good. But in the meantime, God, I'm hoping that this study is helping people to understand what is often deemed a confusing book, a book that even some pastors throw their arms up and say, "I, I can't understand. Help us, God, to put on the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth. Help us, God, to be people that are doing spiritual battle. And then if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, God, I do pray that they fear the coming judgment and they fear facing you. And so I hope that they turn and recognize that if they believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, placing their faith in him, repenting of their sins, that they can have eternal life. Oh, God, how I pray that somebody in this room right now is doing just that. Jesus is God. He is coming back, and he's going to rule and reign, and how we anxiously look forward to that day. Amen.